Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. Coming up in today's episode we are looking at the field of occupational psychology. I am joined by a guest who is just coming to the very end of the process in qualifying in this fascinating career that bridges the gap between the workplace and human behavior. Whether you are listening because you are looking for a career change or maybe looking to dive in at an earlier stage of your career, then you are in the right place. We look at the key aspects of this career, how to get started, how to get qualified and so much more. Hope you find it so useful. Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. One of the joys of creating this podcast is that I'm able to illuminate different facets of professional psychology careers. And I wanted to revisit in more detail something that we spoke about with Dr. Mari Kovanen when we were looking at a variety of issues, including growing up in Finland and looking at dating in psychology and occupational psychology. But I wanted to dedicate a whole episode to occupational psychology, which is what we are doing today. It's going to be really useful for you, whatever stage of career you are at and whether you are interested in occupational psychology or not. I think there's something to be gained by listening to it or watching it. That said, if you are watching on YouTube, please do subscribe, like, share the content, drop me a comment below. In the episode, we do talk about whether there is funding available for student finance, and my guest wasn't quite sure of the answer. I've had a little bit of a Google, and it looks like the best thing to do is to contact the student finance department in the country that you are living in. So I'm in England. For me, it would be Student Finance England, because it seems to be done on a case-by-case basis, depending on what stage of career you are at and whether you've had previous funding. I would love to know what you think of this episode. I hope you find it so useful. I will catch up with you on the other side. I just want to welcome along our guests for today. Hi, Joe. Hi, Marianne. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for saying yes. So we got chatting on LinkedIn and I was like, would you fancy coming on and doing a podcast episode? And thankfully you said yes. I did. And that's one of my, uh, I, I like saying yes to lots of things. So that's one of my, uh, <laughs> one of my potential pitfalls. But yes, I was really excited about this. So thank you. Oh, thank you for squeezing me in at a time when actually you're quite busy anyway, because you've just been telling me that you're kind of coming to the end stages of getting everything sorted so that you can call yourself an occupational psychologist, which is very exciting. Yeah. Yes. So uh, in fact, I've just spent this morning finishing off my amends to send my thesis, submit my thesis for to the examiners so I can get that rubber stamped. And um, and then that kind of closes that journey, which has been an amazing journey. I'm really um, obviously looking forward to sharing some of it with you today. Oh, congratulations in advance. Um, 
and tell us a little bit about how did you come to to doing this particular field in psychology? Yeah, I mean, I, I know everyone's got an interesting story, so I'm a little bit biased in saying that mine's super interesting, but I guess it's interesting in that there was quite a significant career tr- transition. So I spent the first almost 20 years of my career um, in sales and marketing and a very traditional career in terms of, you know, looking for promotions. It was that traditional kind of vertical um, linear type career in in sales and marketing and got to a point where, um, you know, I was marketing director and sales responsibility across Europe, big team, everything I'd always wanted. but something, um, you know, it wasn't evidently, it wasn't really. Um, so I got there and then went, oh, actually, this isn't really what I want to do anymore. Um, also, at the time, from a contextual perspective, I had a, a small child. I was trying to be this great mum, trying to be this great boss, trying to be superwoman in all domains. And, you know, that 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 then kind of started having some consequences for my well-being. And I recognised that and um, decided to to take charge and do something different. So I uh, exited my corporate career, I said, after almost 20 years and started off my own consultancy. And actually at that, in those first couple of years, it was a marketing consultancy. I just took, you know, this is what I do. This is what I'm good at and, and brought it into consulting. Um, then I started finding a lot of the work I was doing was using some of my kind of leadership skills that I'd have kind of developed over my corporate career, doing leadership um, work, doing management change projects, helping um, organizations going through change. Um, And I started kind of realizing this is this is quite different, but this is what I really like. And that's when I started exploring um, opportunities to actually, you know, build my credentials through education. so that's when I started looking at courses that would um, enable me to be better at that, be more informed, use evidence-based practice as opposed to just going out on the whim. And that's when I came across the the masters in occupational organizational psychology at Birkbeck. Amazing! So you decided to take the plunge. I took the plunge. Went back to studying after twenty-two years. Uh, my my undergraduate degree was in social science I majored in economics and sociology so I I don't have a psychology degree um well kind of do now but um uh, so I didn't you know that was was more of a social science um so I enrolled on the organizational psychology master's program at Birkbeck um I did it full-time in a year because I was so desperate to you know learn it all really quickly in hindsight that might not have been um the best idea but um that's that's the route I took um and then I got to near the end and I was just in a bit of a I love this journey I love this I love it I I just find this so fascinating I don't want it to stop um and obviously because I'd chosen full time it was it was coming to an end and I wasn't really ready for it to end and so I recall talking to our professor of our department at the time saying how do I carry on this and it was just very fortuitous at the time uh, Birkbeck were bringing the professional doctorate in occupational psychology um, to f- fruition. Um, and I was advised that might be a nice route, be- and let, you know, because I kind of wanted to work in practice as a practitioner, independent practitioner. So I applied for that and managed to actually coerce one of my friends who on, who's also on the MSc to do it so we could do it together. 
and we both got accepted. So we handed in our master's dissertations and a week later we were enrolled on the professional doctorate and that was back in 2019. Gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. Amazing, excellent timing, but you're clearly the right candidates for those roles as well. Tell us a little bit about the professional doctorate. So is it how big are the cohorts? Do you get paid to train? You know, do you have to pay tuition fees? Yes. So you do have to pay. Um, and it's something in the region of about five ish thousand pound a year. So there is there's obviously a cost there. Um, you are working while you're doing it because actually the part one. So if you are um, if you don't um, if you don't already have the BPS chartership, if you're going in it from scratch, as I was, the part one is you are working and you are then doing reflective learning logs based on the piece of work. And obviously, if you're fortunate enough, you will be getting paid for that work. Because um, I'm an independent practitioner, I was, I did a little mixture. Some projects I was getting paid for, other projects I had to do pro bono simply because I had to write, I had to do the piece of work, and it was during COVID, so you had to kind of make some decisions um, around. Okay, I'll have to do some stuff and not get paid for it in order to get the qualification. So there was a little bit of a mix. Um, you kind of cover you cover five main areas, so selection and assessment, engagement and motivation, leadership, um, change, and then learning and development. Those were the those were the five topic areas, and so you do a meaty piece of work within that domain, and then you write up a sort of five thousand word reflective log on the using the consultancy cycle as the kind of framework evidence-based practice to demonstrate um, you know that you have delivered work to the standard of of um, a you know doctoral student amazing thank you so there's those five key areas but the one thing that I felt like I knew about occupational psychology wasn't there so oh really yeah or maybe I'm just not fitting it in so I think the only teaching I've ever had on it was when we were doing a module or or looking at sick building syndrome which is like um when whole workforce became ill because of the way the you know the building was kind of set up and it just wasn't making people feel good and wasn't Mm. kind of ergonomic or wasn't autonomous for human functioning so I kind of thought that was kind of partly well, the role of occupational psychology but I'm yeah and well, in fact I, I'm there is actually a sixth area which is well-being so um there is a well-being area so some some um of my peers did their focus on well-being initiatives so that that's that's my mistake I should have I should have said that you so well-being is a is quite a um in fact I did my master's on that so I should have I should have <laughs> known that <laughs> no worries at all um so do you have like a favorite area do you have like a a dream piece of work that you like to do in occupational psychology so my area of interest is motivation at work and my doctoral research my thesis was in proactive behavior at work um which is around self-initiated change oriented uh, future focus about challenging the status quo so it's that kind of behavior that um, drives change and that's um, I identify as having a proactive personality so it's an area I was particularly interested in as 
a lot of doctoral students do the thing that they kind of can relate to and want to understand a bit more about themselves. It's a bit of a sort of journey of discovery. Um, and that's my area that I um, found really fascinating. I teach um, on the um, employee relations and motivation module at Birkbeck now. So I teach on the master's program now. Um, so it's kind of gone full circle. And I, I'm, I'm an accredited coach. So I, I particularly like doing work where I'm coaching clients who feel a bit stuck, they're procrastinating, can't see a way forward. That that's kind of my when someone comes to me with that as a coaching dilemma I'm like yes this is fun. this is the thing I love doing um so all things related to motivation I find very motivating and um so that's my sort of thing I'm super interested in but I'm also really interested in leadership and you know the impact of leaders having experienced some great leadership having experienced some not so great leadership and having been in a leadership role and wanting to be a really good leader. So that's all also something that I've, um, I'm fascinated by and it links with motivation um, to a certain degree. Yeah, I guess nothing like working in business and seeing things done well or seeing things done really badly to inspire you to be the difference yes. that makes the difference. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so now you are pretty much almost qualified because I'm 99% kind of just waiting for the rubber stamping are you going to be working just in a self-employed capacity kind of looking for contracts do people sometimes employ occupational psychologists in an employed capacity how does it work yeah so I'll, I'll share kind of my personal experience and then but mine is quite different to others so um so I am as I said independent practitioner so I've got my own consultancy and I have what's called a portfolio career. So within that, I have my independent consultancy work. So I do some coaching, I do leadership development, I pick up nice little strategic projects. Um, I've done sort of stuff around change, engagement, um, culture stuff. Um, so they're, they're kind of tend to be kind of bespoke. It's, you know, it's a, it's a short project or it can be longer. So that's my kind of consultancy stuff, coaching, as I said, I um, work directly with um, clients, coaching clients. I also um, do quite a lot of teaching coaching basics to leaders to enable organizations to have kind of leaders as coach type programs. So I do quite a lot in terms of very sort of simplified coaching. Um, and then I have some jobs where it's more kind of paid for roles. So um, I'm an, a non-exec director for Southern Co-op. So that's a regional cooperative uh, and I sit on that board but I'm also the board ambassador for DE&I I chair the remuneration committee so some of the strengths from from what I do overlays there and then as I mentioned I, I teach at Birkbeck on the master's program oh a little bit of variety is definitely the spice of life isn't it yes yes it is so yeah and you mentioned that you you really like change and for many of our listeners um, or watchers, um, they might be thinking about the kind of stages of change model, which is that is that Prochaska and De Clemente? Have I imagined that? I don't know. But, I think there's quite um, a few. I mean, Kubler-Ross is one that's cited often, which is the one that's associated to the grief model. I mean, there's it's 
there's questionable evidence around it, but I know it's one that okay. often gets used in a work context to talk around change. There's That's from a kind of um, people experiencing change and navigating change. But then there's a whole ton of change frameworks in terms right. of the, the most optimal model of implementing a change at work. Um, and uh, funny enough, one of my projects on my part one was looking at all the different um change models and actually coming trying to get the best out of and come up with something that was um the most helpful so there's lots of different theories of change so there's the stuff that's a little bit more in depth than than the was it um contemplation pre-contemplation action you know maintenance all of that i think and i think the most effective kind of frameworks are those that actually recognize going back to the context and the importance of participation and the importance of kind of getting buy-in and involvement those kind and communication because one thing I've kind of learned over the years is that when change is done badly normally at the root cause is the communication is poor and Mm. so the communication is is kind of at the heart of everything yeah, I think it's really interesting when you look at kind of the way that staff teams function. So, you know, we'll have all worked in some that work really well and others that just they just don't. Um, yeah. Is that kind of something that occupational psychologists could get in there and sort out to help help teams to thrive? Yeah, absolutely. And again, depending on the pathway you sort of choose to go down, because I said it's, it is quite interesting. I've got friends who... 100% work in selection and assessment. That's what they do. They do psychometrics. They, you know, it's about recruitment, selection, assessment, finding the best people for roles. And that in itself is is very specialised. And then you've got, I've got other peers who work fundamentally, you know, in change, whether that's change management, helping through change, navigating change, all the change type stuff. I've got other colleagues who do stuff that's more around uh, well-being, well-being initiatives, well-being interventions. Um so there's, it kind of depends which kind of pathway you decide to go down. Um, I've kind of, because I kind of like, as, as you've probably realised, have my fingers in lots of pies, I kind of like, you know, I'm more interested in someone comes and says what the challenge is and I kind of go, am I the right person? Have I, have I got some knowledge in this? Do I understand it? Can I get to the bottom of it? And then I'll be like, yeah, that sounds like something I could get involved in. So. Um, so, yes, but there are sort of definitely, I don't know if I've answered that very well, have I? I've kind of felt like I've digressed a bit. <laughs> no, absolutely fine. So it sounds, it sounds kind of, I don't know, like it reminds me a little bit of forensic where you kind of have to hold yourself accountable, get everything done and keep hoping to move through the process at the right time. Um, is there like a a pathway that you kind of start on the doctorate and then three years later you you are spat out if you've kind of met all the thresholds or is it a little bit more piecemeal than that? I think the interesting thing with specifically with this with the professional doctorate at, at Birkbeck you know the most people on it have had quite a bit of work experience so we're already you know in work um, or have you know like me was on a you know second career um, so it's and because of the nature of the part one that you are doing work related projects, you have to have access to the, those work. Um, as I said, some some of my peers were 
employed some you know within kind of think what i just citing some of the individuals but you know someone who uh, they worked for in selection assessment that's pretty much what they did someone else who is mainly doing well-being initiatives in nhs um so it, it kind of it it depends on 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 kind of individuals but that idea that yeah it's, it's more linked to their context in which you which you're operating whether you're um or an ind- independent practitioner or whether you're employed and then because it's quite a long journey i've got obviously peers as well who've who've moved companies they're doing different things because you're kind of doing it alongside working it's it kind of yes yeah, it, everyone's path is going to be different essentially I see. Thank you. And obviously, if the circumstances for the person are right and they've not had too much funding before, can they apply for kind of student loan um, things to kind of help with their fees and things? No, I was in a position to be able to self-fund. And because I was working for the duration, I was obviously earning whilst doing. So it is classed as a part time. So I was doing this and pretty much working at times full-time as well so and how old is your youngest child now how many years has it taken from when you first thought "Mm, not sure this is working yeah well she's just turned 13 actually so she's a teenager oh she was about yeah she was she was four when I left my corporate role and so for the last five and a half years I've been you know a student as and working at the same time so yes I'm now a mum of a teenager which is a bit scary <laughs> amazing I'm I'm sort of hovering at the preteen I've got a 10 and a half year old that is like oh it's a whole different ball game but oh know, my gosh that, that sense of you almost on this precipice of like oh I think I'm going I think I'm going I think I'm going yep I'm gonna jump off I'm quitting this corporate life and I'm going to do something different which is exhilarating but also terrifying yeah although I I do remember at the time I mean as I kind of alluded to I I was absolutely going down a pathway to burnout that's where I was headed Um, I was overworking I was working as said big role uh, European responsibility large team and um, working in three different different time zones so um, it, and with a propensity to say yes to too much uh, now that I know that uh, that was a pathway I was heading down so actually when I you know got off the conveyor belt it was such a relief because I think I knew where I was headed um, had I not so um, it was yeah it was a, a much needed I remember at the time having this kind of feeling just yeah, my weight lifted and been able to kind of suddenly be creative because I'd come out of this kind of hamster wheel of busyness, which was not serving me well. Yeah, I think it's amazing what the difference it can make to us physically and in terms of our mental load as well, when we make a decision and we take action and it seems like we're doing like a purposeful, purposeful goal then. I remember when I was trying to decide whether or not to um, stop working for the NHS. And the mental load was so heavy. Anytime Mm. I had a spare couple of minutes, I'd be trying to weigh it up. Like, should I stay? Should I go? Like, literally every time I went to boil the kettle, that's what I found myself thinking about. 
And it's just really hard. And once I'd made that decision, I did just feel so liberated and free mm. and excited, not because the NHS is a bad place to work for, but for me, I'd made my decision and, you know, they're really empowering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like taking control is one of your key tips for reducing burnouts in the psychology sphere, but it might not mm. be your only one. Have you got any other kind of ideas for how how that can be prevented? Yes, I've, and I, I was appreciated you mentioning that this might be a question because I really did reflect on this because I think it was that, you know, this this almost so going heading down that pathway. Um, that was, I think, one of the reasons, you know, this I, this interest in organisational psychology, knowing that this is, you know, work intensification is a real thing and knowing that actually I can make a difference to workplaces by bringing some of my experience and then newly acquired knowledge to help kind of educate um, and help people kind of think differently about how they approach work. Um, as I said, I am I am naturally someone who has a propensity to do too much, to say yes to too many things. If something sounds really exciting, I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I could do that. And it's been a real, real kind of challenge and experience, you know, learning experience to try and recognise that actually I need to be better at being more boundaried. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest thing is that I I absolutely, during my corporate career, did not operate with boundaries. Um, you know, someone sends me an email in an evening and I'm sitting with my phone's there, so I might as well reply, why not? And so that idea of not having any kind of thought around, well, one, what am I doing? Why am I replying to an email at 10 o'clock at night? And two, what, what message is that sending out? as a as that well I think that this is okay so I think that idea of being bounded around um when we communicate and lots of people say oh that but that's the time that suits me it's like that's great but actually what message are you sending out so I think that whole thing around being bounded around when we should and shouldn't be working and communicating um the sort of digital switch off being more bounded around going with my family this is not time to have my phone attached to my, you know, waiting for the next message. So I think there's lots around that kind of, um, and, and it does actually help. I, I don't know if you find the same as being a parent. It does kind of help when you've got a dependence because you kind of say, actually, no, I, I want to be a really good mom. So I am going to switch this off at this time. I think having my daughter has enabled me to be a bit more, um, a bit more boundaried that I wasn't before so I think there's definitely something around that um my top tip that I've only just started implementing it but I felt I felt quite empowered when I did it recently so as I said when people come to me with opportunities I always think oh that sounds really exciting I think I'd really enjoy that yes and then kind of look at my diary and go oh my gosh why did I say that um so I've got a new thing which is I say can can I get back to you on that or let me think about that and I benefit from having a husband who's well boundaried, who I then have the kind of come back to you on it. I'll say to him, he's like, of course, what the, why are you saying yes to that? You've got tons of things on. So I have a kind of voice of reason shouting at me. Um, but also just having that time to then go, right, I know this is really exciting. This sounds really great. But 
What else have you got going on? What is going to be the impact if you do that? And then going back and then saying, actually, thank you so much for the offer, but based on what else I've got on right now, I can't, I can't do it. Or saying, or saying, actually, yeah, I'm going to do it, but it comes with these caveats. So that is quite new. Yeah. It's quite well, new. I feel like I am one of the first people to have experienced that because you did that to me. You were like, let me have a look, let me have a look, maybe research, let me think about it and come back to you. And, you know, I really, I really appreciated that. You know, I want you to feel like you're choosing to do this and that you feel like it's a worthwhile thing to do. But it's, it's absolutely OK to ask for more information, to ask for some time to think, to kind of look at the diary, to plan when you might be able to do that. Um, yeah. And I think it's. It's really common, especially in aspiring psychologists. You want to be keen. You want to get things done. You mm. want to say yes, 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 yes. But then if it means that you are over full, you've got too much in your diary, you can't do it all, you know, and that will be a path to burnout. So learning to say no or, you know, if you don't necessarily want to say no to your supervisor to say, could you help me look at my diary to think about the things that are most pressing in terms of priority so that we can yeah. make sure that everything gets done in a way that that meets your needs and mine. Yeah, I think, you know, and generally I, I when I because I do a lot of work with leaders and I, I, I'm really picking up this kind of propensity to say yes, propensity to not question deadlines, to propensity to assume everything's urgent when it's not, propensity to assume everything's important when it's sometimes not. And this idea of kind of saying not yet or no, or can I think about it? It is empowering. And I think initially people kind of think oh what what might others think of me if I say that and I think this is it's this kind of notion of fearing social judgment of you know what are people going to think are they going to think I'm not coping very well they're going to think I'm not very good at prioritizing honestly from my experience I find you get actually more kudos and respect when you are actually demonstrating I'm 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 in control and I'm telling you what my capacity is so I think it is something that you know a lot of employees and leaders in organizations can can kind of learn from mm, absolutely so important thanks for sharing that with us so you know people are listening to this podcast or watching it at all stages of their life all stages of their career if they're like listening to this thinking oh that sounds like a bit of me um what's the best thing that they should do in terms of trying to move their career forward so I think first and foremost, if it depends, depends obviously on your kind of age and stage. But if um, if you've not already got a master's in organisational psychology, that is really or occupational psychology. That is really the, the first step, um, I guess. For those who have a psychology background, that's that's a, an easier routine, but you can get on an MSc occupational organizational psychology without having an undergraduate degree in psychology so that's good news if there's aspiring psychologists who haven't got the undergrad because I didn't um, it might mean it's a slightly steeper learning curve but that's okay so the the kind of the MSc is is kind of the the pathway in because that then gives you you know organizational psychologist kind of credentials um, and then as to kind of how you want to say that, you know, I know lots of my students who have done their masters and are 
you know that's that's where they that's where they want to kind of end the education but are doing you know really thriving in various different jobs um as i said it's it's so interesting because you know you can have someone who's working for a management consultancy doing change stuff you've got someone over here is working for a recruitment in psychometrics and selection you've got someone over here who's working for a you know a consultancy who do well-being initiatives it's so varied i think that's the part and if you're interested in work if you're interested in the world of work you can kind of find your passion and interest in many different kind of domains and they require very different skills so i think that's why it can, it's quite a broad it's quite a broad um kind of domain Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing um, your time and your knowledge and expertise with us today. Um, where should people come and follow you? Is LinkedIn the best place to contact you or reach out or just be inspired by your wonderful work and posts? Oh, yes. Probably LinkedIn's a good place. I try to um, try to share content on there. Um, I, I'll do a quick plug. I'm actually writing a book now, so um, but it's quite early doors. Um, but hopefully this time next year, my book will soon be published so my research interest in proactive behavior at work has led to an opportunity to write in that um, area so a business I'm working on a business book that's around how leaders can create the right conditions for proactive behavior work to flourish so that's what I'm going to be writing over the coming weeks and months um, my LinkedIn posts are going to be sharing more around my own research in proactive behavior so if you're interested in proactive behavior motivation then i'll be feeding more uh, insights over the coming weeks and months mainly on linkedin so you are joe gray on linkedin um doctor in occupational psychology it says there um yeah and i will look forward to learning more about you and your book and if you wanted to come back on and talk to us about that at any stage when the time is right please let us know but yeah i was thinking when you were saying you know people decide when they get to msc that they're just going to stop and i was thinking often we think we're done and we're not like mm. I think whenever I finish a book I think I'm done I'm never doing that again yeah. and you finish some education I'm never doing that again and then you're like I might just do this thing <laughs> it's funny business. that you've already got a uh, thing <laughs> yes I know do you know what I was I was mindful that because lots of people said that when you come to the end of a of like a PhD or doctorate you kind of you're almost like that oh and that's it I've reached it and i I ran a few marathons in the past and I have had post-marathon blues. We were a bit like, what now? So actually the book was a really nice little next thing so that I didn't have that big dip of what next. So I, I proactively <laughs> set that up. <laughs> uh, well, I hope that it goes really well for you and I hope that your amendments get signed off with no problem and you enjoy your career as an occupational psychologist. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks to everyone for listening. I really appreciate the, the opportunity. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. What a lovely conversation it was with Jo. Please do go and follow her on LinkedIn. She is Jo Gray over there. There will be details in the show notes. Whilst you're at it, come and connect with me as well. I am Dr. Marianne Trent on all of my socials. And you can also come and join the Aspiring Psychologist Community free Facebook group. And you can also, if you would like to, 
consider joining the Aspiring Psychologist membership so that I can help you with your next rung on your ladder. Thank you so much for being part of my world. I will look forward to catching up with you for the next episode of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast, which will be along to you very soon. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. Hello, my name is Veronica Kasova. I live in Edinburgh and I just graduated with a Master's in Psychology of Mental Health. Marion recommended me the Clinical Psychologist Collective when I was networking on LinkedIn and I must say I love it. Um, it is one of a kind. It's like a window into the lives of people on the path of becoming a psychologist. The stories are unique, honest and filled with a kind of intangible wisdom only personal storytelling can uncover. A common thread in the stories I valued most was to be compassionate not only with others, but with myself too. Also, not fixating on becoming a psychologist, but enjoying life, growth, and the final results will come as a byproduct. Marianne, thank you for taking the time to collate all the stories. The book is a true gem, and I think every aspiring psychologist should have a copy on their shelf. Thank you.